Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one. No questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Hello and welcome everyone. This is the High Truths on Drugs and Addiction Season 2 finale. I'm so excited. We're at episode 105. That is a lot of experts and conversations about drugs and addiction. And yet, there's more. I have a full season ahead with new experts and new topics for 2023. High Truths has over 38,000 downloads, is ranked top 20 for addiction podcasts, but more importantly, the drug policies we promote are seeking traction. High Truths is here to answer your questions, and this High Truths season finale is dedicated to you. In 2022, there were over 100,000 people who died of a preventable disease, drug overdoses. Almost 1 million people died from overdoses since 1999. It's an outrage. It's a heartbreak. And frankly, it's embarrassing for a first world country. Approximately 60% of the deaths were attributed to fentanyl. On the West Coast, methamphetamine deaths are rising along with fentanyl. Cannabis-related emergency visits and pediatric poisonings are at a record high as the potency of THC is at a record high. Yet we know that death is just the tip of the iceberg to the total massive problem of addiction and drug use. Our nation is spending billions to try to fix the problem. But is it making a difference? How? What's working and what's not? The experts I invited today will share their perspectives on the complicated drug issues. I will introduce these amazing experts, and they will each share high-truth opening remarks on their perspective of 2022. I will then take your questions for the panel. And finally, our esteemed panel will share with you their hopes for 2023 and beyond. Our experts are Dr. Bertha Madras, who's a professor of psychobiology at the Harvard Medical School, former deputy director for demand reduction at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. She has numerous scientific publications, courses, patents, and awards, and I follow Dr. Madras's service at ONDCP, and she's been my invaluable mentor. 
Dr. Lily Stout is a board-certified addiction psychiatrist, has worked in the addiction behavior field since 1990. She was a medical director for an inpatient program in Colorado for people with co-occurring mental illness and substance use who have failed other levels of treatment. She is also my colleague and secretary of Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. And we have Dr. Jessica Ristow, who's an internal medicine physician, addiction physician, who works with the NCCC, the National Clinical Consultation Center at the University of California in San Francisco. She treats patients with addiction and also advises physicians from across the country through the National Clinical Consultation Center. By chance, we happen to all be women on the panel and are, I call us the super chicks. And with that, Let's start with our panel. Dr. Madras, let's start with you. Can you share with us some high truths, highlights of 2022? With pleasure. Um, My opening statement is we are moving closer to a drug dysphoria in this country with each incremental step in our policies. And I want to bounce on the waves of three drug classes very quickly. Marijuana, what is worrisome? Our potencies today are three, are seven to 30 times higher than they were in the 60s and 70s. Yet states have legalized marijuana for medical and recreational use without FDA approval or necessary safety testing. This is a human experiment without informed consent. And I really hope that families, parents, youth, elderly, people are are aware and also beware of this high potency. The consequences of this are increasingly apparent. There's more rapid progression to cannabis use disorder. There's more severity of cannabis use disorder. There's more substance use disorders of other substances, more anxiety, more psychotic disorders, memory impairment, and social problems. Congress and the states have got to address the potential problems created by high-potency marijuana before we even begin any introduction to thinking about legalizing it at a federal level. The second point about marijuana is that more pregnant women are using the drug. In addition to the fact that at birth these uh, these infants exposed in utero have uh, there's are characterized by preterm deliveries by neonatal intensive care unit admissions, by decreased mean birth weight, uh, decreased uh, APGAR score, decreased head circumference. Nine years later, the ABCD project has shown that there's increased psychopathology. And just um, this past month, there was an update on this. 11 years after they're born, there's persistent vulnerability to psychopathology, which could lead to greater risk for psychiatric disorders and problematic substance use later on. They're also characterized by a higher frequency of rule breaking, of aggression, social problems, cognitive problems, attention problems, ADHD, conduct problems. All of these are now documented in this longitudinal study, which began several years ago. The third point about marijuana is that more teens are using. 
about 13% more since a decade ago. It's not safe for adolescents because they're more vulnerable to addiction and they are using daily at much, much more frequency. And also some are using more than once daily, which is unprecedented in the history of marijuana use amongst youth. There are risks for depression, for suicidal behavior, for psychosis, for compromised academics. The second class of drugs that I want to quickly deal with is um, psychedelic drugs. They are worrisome because the same playbook that was used for marijuana is being used with psychedelics. They're being piggybacked from medical research onto the legalization movement. More teens are using psychedelics. The, the uh, rate has risen 5% in the past two, 10 years, and it's rising faster now because of the medicalization and legalization movement of psychedelics. 25 states are considering 74 bills. 10 bills have been signed into law in terms of legalizing psychedelics. The, the number of reform bills have increased from five bills in 2019 to 36 bills in 2022. And nearly all of them specify psilocybin. Many include MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy. All of them contradict or sidestep the Controlled Substances Act. And most propose decriminalization. Very few of them discuss medical oversight, training, licensing requirements. There's no regulatory guidance based on marijuana legalization. The model pro projects the majority of states will legalize psychedelics by 2034 to 2037. I predicted that this movement would take off around 2010 because I knew the playbook for marijuana in terms of medicalizing first, legalizing secondly, was going to be applied to this group of drugs. The key health issues that are not addressed are standards for drugs procured outside of the medical establishment. There's no licensure criteria for prescribers or therapists. There's no contraindications that are ever mentioned in these bills. And there's no interest whatsoever in trying to decide whether or not the, this class of drugs are at a particular risk for special populations, including youth, older adults, uh, and pregnant women. So why are we making uh, psychedelics accessible by legislation rather than FDA regulatory approval? The American Psychiatric Association just released a position statement that said clinical treatments should be determined by scientific evidence in accordance with re regulatory standards, not by ballot initiatives or popular opinion. And yet, we're marching towards another wave of new drugs. And if anyone has generational forgetting, I urge you to look at the literature of the 1950s and 1960s and early 1970s on what drove this class of drugs to be scheduled. It wasn't a war on drugs. It was the scientific literature driving a political and, and a grassroots movement to curtail use of this class of drugs. Finally, I'll just touch quickly on fentanyl. 
I give a, a, an anecdote that was shared with me this week at the ACNP meeting by a woman who's a neuroscientist, whose husband is a, a psychiatrist, in fact, chairman of psychiatry at a very well-known medical school in the United States. This was a young man who had never touched drugs while he was a teenager, uh, living at home in high school. He went to a college, and I will name the college because it's it's shameful what happened. Uh, it was Reed College. He was uh, invited to a party by seniors. There was a drug seller among the seniors who sold him ketamine. And from ketamine, he began, he in fact uh, developed a precipitated psychosis and started to have extreme sleep difficulties for a number of reasons. He went back to the drug dealer and asked for something that could help him sleep. And it helped him sleep forever because it was, in fact, fentanyl and he did not know it was. And he died and stayed in his dorm room without discovery for two days. A tragic death, an avoidable death, which brings me to the final point that the death of youths 15 to 19 is soaring this year because they are buying pills that they think are therapeutic pills and they're unaware that many of them are laced with or are pure fentanyl. So we have massive problems in this country and I am hope someone in the political domain, some leaders can begin to put brakes on these very, very alarming trends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Madras. And now we'll move to Dr. Libby Stout. Okay, thank you. Dr. Madras, that was an excellent overview. Oh my gosh. Um, and I agree with everything she said. Uh, I have in my practice really made the determination that the biggest problem we have in this country is the fact that we have allowed an industry that's really dependent on addiction to advertise and heavily market high potency THC as medicine, which makes um, people believe that it's safe and there's nothing wrong with it and it's gonna help them and, and they can use it without problems. And, and I think that bleeds over into everything else, very much like the psychedelics where people think, oh, this is another medicine that we can use. Uh, and that to me is, extremely sad because of the ramifications. And I started, I, I've, I ran this program in Colorado for 20 years, which was a really excellent treatment program. We had really great outcomes, um, but I started noticing in, since 2014, when we legalized recreational marijuana in Colorado, that we started having less and less significant outcomes. Um, we had gotten the program up to the point where it was a 90-day inpatient program, and these were people who had failed everything else. So and we had people that had been in multiple previous treatment programs, up to like 19 inpatient treatment programs uh, <clears throat> without success, and they were successful in this one. And it was a lot because um, of the things we instituted. A big one was making it totally tobacco-free and addressing all 
uh, addictions at the same time. So within 90 days, people had the opportunity to actually come to a decision that they wanted to quit smoking marijuana and stay away from it or tobacco. But since we legalized marijuana, we started seeing more and more people with marijuana issues. I started seeing people with cannabis use disorder as their primary problem, which I had never seen before. And then I started seeing people with very severe psychotic symptoms, very severe delusional symptoms that I had not seen before, not even with methamphetamine. And people were experiencing a great deal of violence. And also they were not capable of doing the program. We would do a MOCA or a Montreal cognitive assessment at the beginning of everybody's admission. And the people that had been using marijuana heavily did very poorly on that. And so it took like the first whole month before they were even able to participate cognitively in the program, really. Um, And then they were less likely to complete the program. And so I started telling people about this, that this is what I was seeing. And I got the the answer, well, it's just marijuana. And I think that's been a big part of the problem is people think that it's the old time marijuana, that it's like the stuff that was in the 60s and 70s, and it's not at all. And and so I started getting really involved in more of the legislation and helping to try and promote changes in what we have in Colorado since we were the first state to legalize recreational. And It's been an experiment. Our former governor said that it was going to be an interesting experiment, and it has been a significant experiment, uh, harming quite a few people. Uh, And and so we were able to pass some legislation to get some changes, but one of the things we have not been able to do at all is get a cap on the potency. Um, The legislature is not interested in trying to pursue that. Um, And of course the industry is really fighting it big time. And so I just keep trying to point out that if you look at the research for marijuana, uh, yes, there there is some research. Most of it is on the isolated cannabinoids, uh, not on the leaf. Uh, However, there are some studies on the plant, uh, but all of that has been done with less than 10% THC. We don't have anything out there that supports the use of greater than 10% THC for any medical condition. And yet in Colorado, you can't find anything less than 15%. I mean, most of it is pretty high potency. And, uh, and so it's not really medicine. And so I do a lot of talks where I say, this is not medicine. And we need people to understand that. Uh, and, <clears throat> and we also have a problem in Colorado where we have a law that allows people on probation to be able to use marijuana if they have a medical card. So if a doctor has said they need it, then the judge allows them to do that, which is insane. (laughs) But um, I think a part of it is because the judges are not educated about this and they're just believing if a doctor says this, it should be. But we have little oversight with this and somebody can get a medical card in Colorado and then only see that person once a year to get that card renewed. And so there's no real follow-up. And I don't know that the doctor who initially recommended it realizes that the person is using DAB or 
70% hash oil, uh, vaping it. I, I don't think that they actually know that, but that's what they're doing. So anyway, those are the things that bother me the most. Um, the, as, as Dr. Madras said, the psychedelic issue is on the same planning. In Colorado, we just recently passed a proposition and I'm so glad it's a proposition and not part of the constitution because at least the legislature has the ability to roll that back some, hopefully. But the, the um, proposition was all based on, yes, it's gonna be medicine and we're gonna have medical places. However, it, it includes also growing your own, being able to share with your friends. And that happens immediately as opposed to the medical um, treatment facilities, it'll take a couple of years because they have to go through rules and regulations. And, and so I'm working with individuals now trying to educate legislators about the problems with the psychedelics and why uh, this is just not a good idea. Uh, and, and I even predict, like Dr. Madras did, I, I predict this will go faster than the marijuana did. If we actually legalize the psychedelics in the way this proposition was, we are gonna have significant problems and it's gonna go a whole lot faster than what has happened with high potency THC. Because if people can get a hold of these things and use them independently without any supervision as is recommended when you're doing medical treatment with it, then uh, we're gonna have a lot of people have serious problems because um, it alters people's perceptions of reality. And I have uh, my own personal experience with um, a high school mate uh, who, who graduated from high school with me, uh, two 800s on his SATs, very a smart young man, went to a very high um, prestigious college and started using LSD. And within two weeks, walked out of a second story building and died. And I don't think he was suicidal. I think he thought he could fly and he just killed himself, which um, we're, we're going to see a lot more of that if things go the way that they're going right now. So I, I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Libby. You just um, point out how we need to partner with people who are promoting mental health as well as um, people who are, you know, working on substance use disorder. And let's go to Dr. Jessica Ristow. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you all. Thank you for being here today. And also, uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's been so wonderful to hear from the other panelists. Uh, so again, my name is Jesse Ristow. I'm a consultant for the UCSF NCCC Substance Use Warm Line. We provide one-to-one -one consultancy services for providers. Um, I also practice primary care and addiction medicine here in San Francisco. We're going to switch gears a little bit. So we're going to talk more about opioids and stimulants. Um, first, talking about the overdose epidemic, especially um, as was alluded to earlier and then some treatment updates from the last year. So first, thinking about opioids and stimulants together. Most people have seen that CDC graph that show the exponential growth of the opioid epidemic that's largely been driven by fentanyl since 2013. Um, what has been recently been evaluated is, is this fourth wave, is, which is what we consider this uh, opioid epidemic right now to be the combination of opioids and stimulants together. There was actually a really interesting study of more than 7,000 people in British Columbia that was published this year that showed that if people were using opioids plus stimulants together, as opposed to people who were using just opioids alone, the risk of overdose death was two times higher. 
So we know that from that study and from colloquially that, that there's increasing overdose deaths. And part of that is the relationship of opioids plus stimulants. The natural question that comes up is, well, what about contamination? You know, you probably have heard from your patients about an experience they had where they thought they were using methamphetamine or they were using cocaine, two stimulants, and all of a sudden they had an opioid overdose or what clinically looks like an opioid overdose. And the concern was that there was fentanyl contamination of the methamphetamine or the, um, the cocaine. This is also something that we're seeing anecdotally and from our patients more and more often. It's really hard to actually test this in terms of studies. So there's not a lot of data that I've been able to see that actually shows how often this is happening. The most data that we have are some older studies that are looking at the rates of fentanyl contamination of heroin. So another you know, opioid. Um, so a study in Rhode Island from 2017 suggested that somewhere between 10 to 50% of those who are using heroin um, or non-prescribed opioids have a fentanyl exposure. And of those who said that they had 10% uh, fentanyl exposure in the last six months, again, that was not confirmed by urine drug screens, but just based on their experience, 60% of those did not know that they were using fentanyl before they were using it. So it's a really high um, rate and, and likelihood and risk for opioid overdose because fentanyl is so much stronger than any other opioid, including heroin. As highlighted before, there's also opioid contamination of stimulants. And so that's an even scarier thing that sometimes we're seeing because people who have, who use, both of them are scary, but people who have, who use stimulants regularly, they have no opioid tolerance. So even a very small amount of fentanyl can cause an opioid overdose. And so ways, especially in the harm reduction world that are being, uh, that are trying to address this are one, providing fentanyl strips, which are unfortunately not available at lo most local pharmacies, but are usually distributed either by local harm reduction centers or by some clinics. And what this, this means is that usually people can take a small amount of their drug supply, um, have it in a solution and then dip in the, the strip. And then the strip will tell you if it has some fentanyl or not. There's a lot of different uh, ways to do that, and most of them are, are pretty effective with a false negative rate of maybe less than uh, uh, 5%. So it's, it's you're typically pretty good. The other thing that we've been doing more often clinically is to make sure that even those who don't consistently use opioids, but maybe those uh, who also just consistently use stimulants have an active naloxone or Narcan prescription to make sure that people who are at risk for opioid overdoses have the, the ability to be able to reverse that opioid overdose with naloxone. So now we'll briefly talk about treatment uh, updates for opioids and stimulants. First, uh, before we can talk about treatment options for opioids, we have to talk about the treatment gap. We know in general for any substance use disorder, um, based on 2019 NESDA studies, that less than 10% of people who have a substance use disorder receive treatment. And that's really been unchanged for like 20 years, despite a lot of different changes. The medications for opioid use disorders, or MOUD, include buprenorphine, sublingual, extended release, or methadone. Um, there's also extended release naltrexone. However, in a real-world study this or last year, suggested that only buprenorphine or methadone and not extended release naltrexone had a mortality benefit in that real-world study. In this last year, um, there was a couple interesting studies that really highlighted that there was a lot of decreased access for buprenorphine, despite the fact that buprenorphine can be prescribed by ex-wavered providers outside of opioid treatment programs. So in our clinics, whether they're primary care or addiction specialty, if a provider has an ex-waiver, they can prescribe buprenorphine. 
But despite this, a study again this year showed that of the more than 7.6 million individuals in the United States that, that, uh, that have an opioid use disorder, only about 1 million, which is uh, a little bit over 13%, have received medications for opioid use disorder. There's many aspects to that, but one thing that has come up as well as thinking about um, pharmacy availability. A study in New Mexico showed that less than 50% of hospitals had buprenorphine on formulary. So access uh, is, a, is a key issue there. The most prominent thing that's really changed in terms of actual treatment for 2022 is thinking about how do we get people on buprenorphine? There's all these different protocols that have come out in terms of microdosing, which is a small increase of buprenorphine over time, although typically also continued on an opioid agonist, versus this kind of newer idea of macrodosing, where people wait for a longer time and then start a higher dose of buprenorphine. I won't go into the details of either of those, but that's really kind of the exciting thing for this year is that there's more and more studies, case reports, no randomized control, uh, controlled trials yet that really kind of describe what protocols people are using. Now to go on to stimulants. So unfortunately, there's no FDA-approved medications for stimulant use disorder. Again, stimulants are, are cocaine um, or methamphetamine. Um, uh, many have been studied. The ones that have the most evidence perhaps are mirtazapine or bupropion plus extended release naltrexone. Um, both of those have some positive study uh, signal. However, um, again, they're not FDA approved. So some people use them off-label, especially have, if they have concurrent other comorbidities for which those are FDA approved. In terms of treatment access, this is the exciting thing that's happened for stimulants. So this year, well, in California specifically, so not quite uh, across the country, the state Medicaid system has expanded um, options for substance use disorder treatments. Specifically, now there's potential funding for something called contingency management, which is the only like truly FDA-approved treatment option for, for stimulant use disorders, uh, which is basically a behavioral-based treatment that's effective and FDA-approved, um, which actually uses consistent visits over time with urine drug screens that when negative, then the participant provide, gets a, a prize or a raffle. Um, and so this change in funding will hopefully increase access for contingency management, this really important treatment strategy in California, and hopefully uh, California will lead the way for other states to provide access to this as well. Lastly, I'll just finish with a reminder about the um, National Consultation Center uh, that we have out of UCSF here. We provide free confidential one-on-one -on -one telephone communication for issues including hepatitis C, HIV, and of course, substance use disorders. Our phone number is 855-300-3595, and there'll be some information after the show uh, to give you that information again. So with that, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, um, Jesse. And and uh, the advice line also uh, gives advice for alcohol. I, I know you didn't mention that, but if uh, it's 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 part of the uh, addiction substance use disorder um, problem, um, uh, including the other drugs that we talked about, and and Dr. Ristow provides assistance with that, with intoxication and withdrawal management for for alcohol. So with that, let us open it up to questions. And I'm going to go through the order that I see it in the chat. So we'll start with Ron Stark, um, who is Program Manager at Turn Behavioral Health Services. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Doctor. Appreciate the, the presentations there. I'm curious uh, for any lifetime exposure studies <laughs> of that might coincide with the onsets of some of these psychiatric presentations. For example, you're mentioning uh, students being more anxious in school, uh, higher anger outbursts, and 
and uh, and those kind of things at at uh, like the 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 first grade through say fifth grade. Uh, and my wife is a teacher, and she notices that the class the students seem to be getting more and more disruptive and just unmanageable. Uh, who wants to take that on? Maybe our psychiatrist, Dr. Stout. I know we've we've had there are several studies out there. One is the ABCD longitudinal study with several thousand um, uh, kids uh, looking at you know when parents use drugs, how that affects anxiety and mental health in their in their children. Um, and, and but uh, Libby, tell us. Yeah, well, I, I think most of the studies, like as Dr. Madras mentioned, the ABCD study is a long prospective ongoing study where they're picking up kids from birth. And so these are kids that were exposed either in utero or then as they were growing up. Uh, So um, I'm not sure there's any been one specific study looking at lifetime exposure, Uh, but I think the important thing is, the most important is the exposure during the time of the developing brain. And of course, the brain is constantly developing through um, in utero all the way up to mid-20s. And so any time during that period, exposure can be very significant. And, you know, that what we do believe is the biggest exposure problematically is during adolescence when the brain is making a decision, what are we keeping and what are we getting rid of? So the brain is doing what's called pruning. And it's interesting that there's two receptors responsible for pruning. One is the nicotinic cholinergic receptor and the other one is the CB1 receptor. So this really means that kids during puberty that are using tobacco or marijuana actually are um, impairing their own brain development at that time. Great. Thank you, Libby. And next we have um, Debbie Haskins um, from Vermont, clinical supervisor of student assistant professionals and private practitioners. Debbie, what's, let's hear your question. Thank you. Um, what I'm interested in, of course, is everything that you're all talking about. In particular, like every place, Vermont has a difficult problem with vaping and students in school who have cannabis use disorders and they're vaping. And what we want to know is what kinds of medical treatment intervention is actually showing any efficacy at this point. And I'll listen. Libby, um, I'll defer to you. Just I was at the uh, ACNP meeting just uh, this past week, and there were two presentations on two candidate medications to treat cannabis use disorder with some very promising outcomes. So even though there are no medications currently in place, like there there are for uh, opioid use disorder, uh, it seems that uh, the field is moving very quickly in terms of uh, developing clinical trials and seeking FDA approval. So we may see medications come on board in the next five years. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. I know of several companies that are working on what I would call MAT for cannabis, you know, medicated assisted therapy, but they're not there, they're not there yet. The only thing that's really out there is N-acetylcysteine, which is an over-the-counter drug um, that has shown some promise. And it's available over the counter, but it requires like pretty high dose, like 1200 milligrams twice a day. 
Um, but it has minimal side effects. Uh, and so that's something that I think I can encourage people to try. It's also mostly been studied in youth, to my understanding. Interesting. And actually, just coming out on my phone app is a $1.7 billion jewel settlement for targeting youth. Um, you know, many years ago, actually, the CDC Office of Tobacco, when I contacted them, had a study, um, a predictive model that uh, looked at lives saved versus lives taken from vaping, from e-cigarettes. And they showed for every... Um, one person that may stop using tobacco, we will create 80 new youths that will be addicted that otherwise would never have used. And also for every 100 years saved, you know, from tobacco cessation, we will have cost 1.5 million years from use. So um, my advice is using the tobacco money, tobacco model. Right? There's a lot on that tobacco model, the truth initiative, that the vaccine campaign and in, in preventing you. So like I would say, you know, you've done all this for tobacco. Why aren't we doing it for vaping? And maybe in, and use that um, analogy and advocacy. So um, thank you, Debbie. And I'm going to go next is uh, Laura um, Osland, I'm going to just kind of go through the chat and then through the, the hands on the screen. So Laura is from Nevada, Pace Coalition Northeastern. Laura, thank you for joining. I, I just want to know how do we, how do we reach, I, for me and for those of us who are on here, it's, it, we, we see it, we can't figure it out. How do I how do you talk make to these to the government and our local government and say it's costing us hundreds and hundreds more in costs than the taxes they're getting. Yeah. Um, all right. So our panelists, um, Dr. Madras, Dr. Ristow, Dr. Stout. Well, I, I would the only thing we can do is educate people. And so you have to educate your legislators. Uh, that's what we've been doing in Colorado. And that's how we were able to get something passed last year. Uh, I spent um, an inordinate amount of time doing Zoom meetings one-on-one -on -one with legislators and some lobbyists from two organizations, one with being um, One Chance to Grow Up, which is the previous Smart Colorado. and um, Blue Rising Together, which is a, a lobbying team. That's all you can do is educate people. Yeah. So I, I mean, I know we probably have different opinions um, uh, about this. I don't think it's an issue of criminalization. I don't. I don't, I don't think we should put people in jail who um, um, even use drugs. The, the criminal behavior behind the drugs you know, violence, theft, whatever. That's a different story. But for using, I, I you know, I. Um, uh, uh, that's different, but I do think we owe the public informed decision, and that's what doesn't exist, informed decision on the harms. We have informed decision when it comes to tobacco, even alcohol, illicit drugs. Most people who use fentanyl and meth know that it's not healthy for them. We don't have it uh, with marijuana, and that's what makes it different, um, and, and that word isn't out, and, and actually there's contrary, where people are getting, no, it's healthy, it's a plant, it's natural. And they're not seeing the consequences that 
we as healthcare providers are are seeing. And I think to me, that's the message that needs to get out because it's not fair. It's tricking people. Right. And that's me. It's the outright lies. And, and I agree. I, I would rather people get services than than to be put in jail or anything like that. But and with Scott Chipman, we use I'm on the Alm um, email and we use the information that you put out and and forward it. But I, they just I don't know. I don't know if they see the dollars or just don't see the danger. And I don't know how to we informed them as best we could without you know, stepping over the line between information and education and advocacy and all of that. All right. Well, thanks. If I can add just quickly, for those who think that educating is ineffective, uh, twice I was in the editorial office of the Boston Globe, um, once with a team of uh, two other people and once with a larger team, to try to um, get them to uh, write an editorial against uh, first the medical marijuana bill and secondly the marijuana legalization bill. <clears throat> Both times when I entered the office, they said, forget it, we've already been visited by the marijuana lobby and we're probably not gonna change our editorial policy on, on, promote, on advocating for these two bills. And we came in equipped with data, with manuscripts, with facts. And uh, to my shock and awe, uh, two days later on the medical marijuana, the editorial came out to vote no on it. And uh, exactly the same happened for legalization. They vote, they, the editorial came out. The uh, Massachusetts, of course, didn't listen because we have a very large youth population. But what is so interesting, and I think this is a, one of the most important points about education, is that the Wikipedia had a list of all the endorsements for the legalization and medicalization of marijuana, endorsements by newspapers in Massachusetts. They left out the Boston Globe editorials because they were advocating for uh, for these movements. And I went into the um, archives of the Globe. I got the editorials verbatim, copied them, typed them into Wikipedia as a counter, and they were erased in real time. I tried at two in the morning. I tried at eight in the morning. I tried four times. And there was someone vigilant watching Wikipedia to make sure that those anti-marijuana editorials were erased. Some people follow the science and data. Some people follow the money. Um, Julie Seamus, president of Drug Awareness Foundation in Los Angeles. I do have a question. <laughs> I want to know. Uh, how often do you see people revived with Narcan that have permanent brain deficits? Because mm -hmm. I think kids think, oh, I can use and have Narcan nearby sometimes and then I'll be fine. And I just, when I speak to schools, I want to be able to tell them that, yes, this happens or it doesn't happen. 
I can start with that. Thank you. Um, so just to get granular, any opioid overdose death is typically due to respiratory depression, which is basically the person doesn't get enough oxygen in their body to fuel their heart, their lungs, their brain, et cetera. And so if that time period is limited, and then therefore they're given naloxone or something else to reverse the opioid overdose, then they'll start breathing again, and then the oxygen will, um, uh, will continue to flow to their body. So that's the like, are they going to die and, and stay dead or not? That's that piece. Then there's a subsequent piece of, is there any other damage to their heart, their lungs, their brain, the, the brain damage that you mentioned before? And that's the second question. And that really depends on the duration of how long they weren't breathing for. So if they're not breathing for just a couple minutes, you know, uh, then uh, less likely that that will be maintained for for a long time but if they were not um if they were not revived for quite some time and then somehow after the narcan they were revived that brain damage any brain damage due to low oxygen whether it's due to a heart attack or whether it's due to um, opioid overdose is typically permanent for for the vast majority of people did that answer you. your question yes thank you you're welcome. Sadly, as an emergency physician, I see them, and there's a whole spectrum. And again, just like um, Dr. Ristow explained, it depends on the dose and the time of the Narcan. So it doesn't always work. They say, oh, it didn't work. Well, if you wait too long and the person's already dead, it's not going to work. And if you give it really right away and right at the same time, it's like, oh, well, what's the big deal? Nothing happened to me. And everything in between. Um, lung damage. We see a lot of people with lung damage if you're not breathing for a while and, and, and brain dysfunction. Um, Devin Versace, um, who is advocating for a candy ban. And uh, Devin, tell me, what's your question? First, I want to thank you, Ronit, for what you're doing and commend the really excellent work of Isaac and of course, a lot of the people listening are also very active. Um, so we talk about education. And what strikes me is the American history of books that changed America. Uh, the Pure Drug Act came about because uh, Upton Sinclair in 1905 wrote The Jungle. The environmental movement came about because Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and, you know, we had the Civil War. Um, there's, there's other books that were very influential. There's three writers that I have identified who I think have the potential to write uh, in a way that changes American um, opinion on drugs. And these are, of course, Alex Berenson, um, Michael Schellenberger, and uh, uh, Sam Quinones. And, you know, all three of them are, uh, you know, top selling authors. They write really as liberals, <laughs> not conservatives. And they're, they're really excoriating the, uh, the drug scene. So my question is, how can we reach out to these three individuals and get them to start carrying our water more. I mean, specifically, Alex Berenson needs to write a follow-up to his book, Tell Your Children, which, you know, should have done more than it did. 
So this is my question. How do we activate? I think these three guys are potential assets. How do we how do we activate them more? All right. Uh, Dr. Madras, Dr. Stout. I'm sure they're on your speed dial on your phone. You could contact them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm 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 I've got their all their contact information. The uh, problem with I, I think the books is that they're not getting into the hands of the people who should be listening. In so many ways, our country is polarized, and it's polarized on drug policy as well. People have made up their minds on the benefits, the financial, basically, the profiteering benefits of drugs and also their personal use, don't want to hear the opposite side. Um, and so you have to try to find reasonable people in positions of leadership. And sometimes these are quite hard to, to identify because so many are either on one side of the issue or the other. Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts read Sam Quinone's book and was very moved. And he did a, a very rational approach to the opioid crisis in Massachusetts. I think, he, in fact, he was stellar in trying to curtail it. But getting other politicians, people who have decision-making, um, to listen to the other side when they think it's politically inexpedient or will cost them money or votes is very difficult. And a lot of the movement, I think, at this point has to be grassroots. What changed the course of history in drug use in our nation starting in the early 1900s were people, parents spouses whose 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 family members were addicted to opioids and there were tragedy after tragedy and they began to pressure politicians to an extent where these politicians felt that they're not going to win the next election unless they bend and yield to this grassroots movement and from my perspective at this point it is up to we the people rather than uh, waiting for politicians to read thoughtful books. Great, great answer. Let me take a break from the questions because I want to be cognitive of Dr. Ristow's time. She's actually seeing patients and took a break for us. Um, so we're going to do some closing remarks and then get back to your questions. We have a very wise audience with many of you are experts and actually can join this panel. So I really thank you for joining us and engaging in important dialogue. I ask our experts to conclude with High Truth Hopes for 2023 and beyond. And let's start with Dr. Jesse Ristow. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so my hopes for this next year are that, um, one, there's more studies that come out in terms of uh, comparisons of how we initiate buprenorphine to really figure out what's the best for our patients. Um, also hope that there's increased access uh, for buprenorphine in particular, as well as methadone for people who have opioid use disorder so that we can continue to reduce the treatment gap. And then lastly, I really hope that this uh, changing funding in California really expands to increase uh, practically the access to contingency management. So there is treatment, uh, more access to treatment for stimulant use disorder. And then my last hope is I'm hoping that uh, I'd, I'd love to get a raise of hands for people who are on video in particular. Are you clinicians that potentially could prescribe buprenorphine, but maybe don't have your X waiver yet? So you could, if you're, if you're brave enough to raise your hand, 
Okay, I don't see anybody yet. Well, I hope that if there's some, at least one or two people that are on this podcast or listening in later, that you get your X waiver. Because one of the other incredible updates that happened in the last year was that SAMHSA basically changed it. So instead of uh, medical providers, MDs or or, um, DOs needing to do an eight-hour training plus an online training, or NPs or PAs needing to do a 24-hour training plus an online training, Instead, all you have to do is go to the SAMHSA website, and in 10 minutes, you can get your X waiver training. It's free, permanent, and you can prescribe buprenorphine up to 30 patients at a time. So that is going to be a huge, yeah, a huge change, and hopefully will really increase access for buprenorphine. Um, so I hope that, that people are able to do that. To find that, you can literally just Google SAMHSA buprenorphine X waiver, and it'll pop up. So those are my, my hopes for the next year. Thank you so much. That's great. Great hopes. And uh, we led a movement to X the X waiver because, you know, we don't need special credentials or education to prescribe opioids. Why should we have barriers to undo that damage? Um, and uh, let's go on to Dr. Stout. Okay. So um, my hope is that we just continue doing what we're doing in terms of educating people, because I do believe it's working in Colorado. Uh, the latest report was that we had a 50, almost a 50% reduction in medical marijuana sales. Uh, and, and we've had medical stores closed. We've had doctors stop recommending it. And they're all blaming, you know, us because we're not making it easy for them to do their job. Um, but I think that's great. Uh, so I, I do want to, in this thing, answer one of the questions I saw from Julie Shower, because that is, to me, the biggest part of this whole thing. Yes, people are quoting that marijuana is only like 9% addictive rate. And that's old data. That is from old research. That's the old time marijuana. The high potency THC is having a much higher addiction rate. In fact, NIDA published the um, the updated levels, and it really is more like 30%, which is just like tobacco, basically. And that's what I've been seeing in my practice is that nicotine has been the hardest drug for people to quit. And we can't forget that it is the number one killer. I mean, it takes a long time to kill people, but nicotine is the one that kills more people. And this is why I I spend so much time trying to educate people also about nicotine. But I've found that the high potency THC is just as addicting as nicotine. People have the hardest time quitting, especially these people that have severe cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Uh, and you finally can convince them that it's the cannabis causing their problem. And they say, okay, I need to quit. And then they can't. And then we have the problem that insurance doesn't pay for marijuana cannabis use disorder. Um, Medicaid doesn't pay for cannabis use disorder. Um, and so people are really struggling and they don't have any help. So what I hope to see in this next year is that this is taken a whole lot more seriously by treatment programs, by, um, insurance companies, uh, that people are actually saying that this is something we have to support, we have to treat and that yes, there may be, um, advent of medication to help with the treatment. So that's all. That's great. Thank you. And Dr. Madras. I, I, I think that um, the, the most important job that we have with regard to um, 
disseminating the information is at every possible level. I think the medical associations, the FDA, for example, has been marginalized, completely marginalized. It is the most um, most important body in our nation in terms of protecting our drug supply. And it has saved and spared millions of Americans from fraudulent, ineffective, or very dangerous drugs. And yet in the case of marijuana, they have simply been sidelined through the ballot initiatives. We have to put pressure on some of the federal agencies that are responsible for regulating uh, for regulating um, medicines, I think Colorado has done a great job. But I think what what has also undermined the uh, medical marijuana movement is the fact that it, in many cases, it was a ruse for um, for legalized and recreational use. And so when when the recreational use came in, uh, the people who were showing up at the age of 34, undefined pain, uh, no longer have to go to a physician for it because they are perfectly content to buy it in in a local store without any repercussions uh, that are legal or, or, or otherwise. So I think part of the demise of the medical marijuana movement is because the ruse is over once there is legal access to the drug. Great. Thank you so much. And now with those conclusions, we're going to go back to your questions. Um, and I see in the chat, Bart Bright. So Bart, if you want to unmute, you said you had a question about uh, suing doctors. Yeah, my, fa my favorite jo thing as a doctor to be sued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these medical marijuana doctors, I, I went in and got my medical marijuana card uh, quite a while ago, many years ago. And it took about, I don't know, two minutes. And um and there's a huge line and, uh, you know, anyway, people were getting their medical marijuana cards in about one or two minutes. So uh, if we, uh, any, any ideas, um, I know this is not the place to put them, but maybe if you have an idea in the chat, as a group, should we consider helping people who have been harmed sue, quote unquote, medical marijuana doctors for malpractice? Dr. Stout, Dr. Madras, what do you think? Well, I think that um, there are some places where that could be done. Um, I just don't know if anybody's willing to take that on. Uh, I, you know, the the response that they have is, well, we haven't, um, we're we're not prescribing it because it's not a Schedule One because it's a Schedule One drug, so we can't prescribe it. And so we're just recommending it. But I think people should be held accountable right. because we recommend over-the-counter medications all the time, um, over-the-counter stuff. And so I think that people need to get out of that thing. But there needs to be attorneys that are willing to take this on because I think there definitely are problems where, at least what I've seen in the people I've worked with, where people just write a card for somebody, they never follow up with them. I've even gotten medical records, which is rare, where I've seen a checkbox where the patient actually checked the box that said, have you had previous suicidal thoughts? Yes, nobody wow. ever asked about it and then continue to you know, just see them once a year. Um, yep. 
those are those are scary things, and I think that somebody needs to start doing that. Okay, good. Well, thank you. And Bart, think about your experience getting five minutes to get a medical marijuana card, a, a psychoactive drug. How long does it take you to get an amoxicillin prescription for your ear infection or or Paxlovid? Exactly. So, it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, as you know, I'm. It took a lot, and it's really a passion for me to be a physician. I mean, it's it's a life calling. And to see a me the medical community do harms has been horrible with the opioid prescription epidemic. I think there needs to be, and, and it, we were pushed into that. But I think when you're recommending a drug, a device, a therapy as a physician, you need to follow the standard of care. You need to get, you know, vital scans, a history, check for drug interactions. So if somebody is prescribing a medicine um, when there is a counterindication, I think that, you know, you're liable for that. Right. Or um, just recommend or even recommending. Yeah. So um, Dr. Stout and I would be your, you know, expert medical witnesses in such cases, but we're not lawyers. Right. Um, but we would hold colleagues accountable that if they're prescribing a, a a treatment that there's uh risk benefit uh decisions like we do for any medical therapy good thank you um next we um let's see i'm going through the chat here and we have a high school student prisha desai um prisha thank you so much for joining her question is i'll just read her question um prisha is a high school student from San Diego, who wants to understand how do you identify what pills are safe to use and what isn't, which is an excellent question from um, a student, and how effective do you think programs such as Red Ribbons is and Just Say No to Drugs for Youth? Um, so I could tell you, um, Prisha, also thank you so much, how innovative for you to join our, our um, session here. And basically, given fentanyl has really infected all the drug supply, if there is a pill out there, if you didn't get it with your name from a pharmacy, it's not safe. And um, there's no guarantee of safety unless you got it with your name, not even friend's name or friend's prescription. If it's your prescription with your name on it from a pharmacy, then you know there are enough standards to keep that safe. Short from that, if if people are still going to use, you can try the fentanyl testing strips and 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 use that. They're available on Amazon and various places. You could buy fentanyl testing strips and test drugs for um, for fentanyl. But I would also ask, like, why do you need that drug? What is bothering you, or what hole are you trying to feel fill in order to? To, that makes you want to use those drugs. Is it because you can't sleep? Is are you anxious? Is it a social lubricant? Are, are you suffering trauma? Because that's a core thing that needs to be addressed, and your future. Um, and while drugs do fill that hole um, temporarily, the damage that they cause the rest of your body and your mind are are much greater. So there's important decision making in protecting yourself and your future. And looking on the long-term consequences versus the short-term ones for for using drugs. And Libby and uh, Bertha, anything to share with Prisha? I, I think the um, answer to the question of um, does just say no work 
I think it, it depends on where that's coming from. If you have a, um, you know, a mantra where someone walks into a classroom and says, just say no to drugs without explaining what drugs do to your brain, to your behavior, to your body, I don't think that's very convincing. I think what's much more convincing and what we don't give young people enough credit is that they are not only capable of understanding the basic science, but they also want to understand it. They want to know why there are these prohibitions, there are these concerns and caveats about drugs. So I think it's really important to make certain that we explain what are the potential consequences and be very honest about it. You know, of a hundred people who use a few times a year, a few times a month, uh, perhaps uh, every five years, the probability is that many will get away without any consequences, except that it's Russian roulette. Some people may have a psychotic reaction initially, and therefore they're going to be in trouble for, you know, potentially for a much longer period of time. The other people who can have massive influence on a child's drug use is parents. And that is something that is so minimized in our dialogue on drugs. Uh, one of the studies we published in, in JAMA a little while ago showed that if parents use, they uh, their children are much, much um, higher probability to use as well. And we have to recognize that the influence of the home and the parents is powerful. We simply do not acknowledge that. We think that it's all about peers. In fact, there are studies showing that a parental strong stance against drug use can suppress peer influence if the parents have a reasonable relationship with their children. So we the two-pronged approach is, is a cultural attitude, a cultural educational outreach to children, but above all, it has to begin in the home. Great answers. Um, and let's go to Scott Chipman. Scott, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, uh, thank you for your comments on the Dr. Phil show. <laughs> well, um, well, first, I'm going to return the thank you to everyone who's doing this work. It, I agree. It's grassroots. I want to just stop me if I go too long. But um, I want to point out that we have uh, civil cannabis industry victims educating litigators. We are looking for uh, potential litigants. And so contact Americans Against Legalizing Marijuana. If you think you have a case, we have all the interrogatives. We can help with that. Um, also, just to kind of clarify something, drug courts were very, very effective in getting people into um, treatment programs until the threat of incarceration went away. And we had programs for DUI where just the threat of, of serving uh, a weekend in jail was enough to put people into treatment. They chose treatment for weeks and weeks and months rather than go to jail for one weekend. We have lost that ability now. Also, just a, I got three marijuana recommendation cards. I never even saw a doctor. And I sent that information to the California Medical Association. If they did something, I didn't know anything about it. Um, so one of my questions, uh, is um, what are the where are the cost studies? We saw Centennial University 
um, with their study, but we need the cost studies because the two strongest arguments appear to be uh, for legalizing marijuana appear to be uh, the tax revenue and the social justice issue. So I'd like to also know what we think is the best argument against the social justice issue for legalizing marijuana. And my hope for 2022, and this I'll end with this, is that we can get an, a national standard for identifying why a child dies. We know through studies and data collected in Arizona, Texas, and Florida that the number one drug associated with a child's death is marijuana. The number one drug associated with a child's death in those three states is marijuana and not by a little bit. In Texas, it was greater than the next four drugs combined. I thought for sure there would be a national standard for collecting this information. If there is, we're not able to access it. So that's my hope. And I'd like to, I'd like to know where are the cost studies and my, sorry, one final statement. The evidence for the harms of marijuana stack is getting higher and higher and higher. I have no hope for more studies. We have, we are being buried by studies. What my hope would be is more talking to legislators and experts. Talk, talk, talk. We don't need any more evidence. We don't need any more studies unless you think the new study that comes out is going to change everything because perception of harms is going down rather than with the more more studies we have the the more perception of harm goes down and that's wrong that's a paradox <laughs> thank you scott i think this is a great that's a great question for dr madras who works at harvard and has like a billion studies that and publications that she has written I don't think she wants to put a, a stop on study, but what's, what's your perspective? <laughs> I'm going to give you an example, and this is unpublished data. It was presented at this meeting, but it's an example of why we still need more studies. First of all, every single study that shows an association between marijuana and psychosis, for example, has been questioned by the industry, by proponents, by zealots, on it being an association rather than a causality issue. So that marijuana does not cause psychosis, they're just associated by some magical link. The more studies that come out on showing the time, the, the temporal association, in other words, you don't have psychosis, you start using marijuana, and then you develop it. Or you don't have psychosis, you escalate from 3% THC to 50, and then you develop a psychosis. Uh, if you go into an emergency department with a psychotic reaction to marijuana, 10 years later, you develop full-blown schizophrenia if you continue using those studies become more and more powerful in trying to dismiss the people who are dismissing the science. So I will never, never claim that the science is settled and the science is complete. Every study we have really adds to the, the baseline for which we can we can push back against these counter uh, counter um, views. 
And here's the one study that I mentioned at the beginning of this, this, uh, this monologue. We have found in, in um, preclinical studies, these are animal studies, and they happen to be in two species, which are very powerful, that THC given daily, which is what more and more kids are doing now, really does raise an inflammatory response in a critical brain region, something that no one ever really found in the past. And this inflammatory response could give rise to an explanation of why kids have sleep problems, kids may engage in violence on withdrawal, why they may have less empathy for others, why they may um, be more uh, prone to psychosis or what have you. This inflammatory response only occurs during the in, in adolescent subjects, not in adults. And this is something that has stunned us. I was so worried about it that I had it done in three different labs to ensure that it's it's real. And we're writing it up right now. But it is, in from my perspective, a very critical uh, piece of data on trying to say, that there is actually evidence that your brain may be damaged if you use marijuana frequently. As but it, if no one's hearing the study, it, the study is borderline useless. We need to speak about the study 10 times more than the study itself. As soon as it's peer-reviewed and published. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. We have a question from Nora Green. She is from Washington, D.C., and she says she's concerned that we continue to criminalize marijuana in marginalized communities, especially black and brown. And she said the conversation does not feel like we're addressing the use and harm to early use and youth. Um, and I assume she's speaking as a prevention specialist. Um, and um, is it true, and I think it is, <laughs> Um, that the black and brown community is especially hit hard. I know the data for that with fentanyl. Teen, black teens in California have, deaths have gone up fivefold in the past two years. Black teens have died of fentanyl five times more in the past two years in California. So um, for opioids, it has definitely taken a mark and disproportionately because overall deaths from fentanyl went up threefold, but in black teens, it went up fivefold. Um, and um, is is industry targeting black youth um, for THC use and therefore harms? I, I, I would say yes. And that's my concern about the whole push with social justice that, you know, we need to have more of um, people of black and brown being able to run dispensaries and things like that, because there's a, a very recent study out of the VA looking at almost 5 million veteran health admissions um, showing cannabis use disorder, looking at cannabis use disorder. And it found that the highest rate of cannabis use disorder was in blacks less than 35 years of age. Um, and so I think people are very high risk, I think even more high risk. And so um, I, I think that's not being addressed. I think the, again, it's the focus on the money and we need to have, you know, people that 
you know, have been affected by the criminalization of it to be allowed to be participating in the money. But um, I'm afraid that it might make more of a problem with them having reactions to the, the to the plant. Yeah, and if we look at the mental health, we would eventually see more mental health issues in that population that's using uh, more of of these type of drugs. Allison Ag um, Agostino, if I'm saying your name right, Allison Agostino, you have your hand up. You said it perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just had a quick question, and I hope it's appropriate because it's a little bit selfish towards my job position. Uh, but I'm a drug and alcohol prevention specialist in uh, very rural Glendive, Montana, so about 4,000 people, um, very small town. And I was also a drug patch installer for um, a monitoring program through the courts. And one of the, I guess, biggest issues I've faced is I get a lot of opportunity to meet in my small town with my local government, um, mayors, city council, chamber members. Um, but a lot of times my time meeting with them is like 30 seconds or less, or I have to schedule very big, long talks. And I would love to know what um, any of you um, experts would do in my case, if you were to do a very quick elevator speech to gain interest in a topic that they might only follow the money for because they are trying to run a small town that's broke. So what would your kind of um, go-to topics would be to hit the most important facts while also getting them a little bit more interested. All right, um, Dr. Stout. Uh, well, I've, I've done this uh, in Wyoming where they have similar issues, uh, very small area. Um, and it's been effective just talking to the legislators because now there's a legislator there who just happens to now be the, I guess, the speaker of the house who after hearing the issues about children, I mean, that's the most powerful impacting thing is, you know, all these edibles that there's been this, like a study out of Canada showed an 800% increase in children overdoses uh, with the edibles. And he wants to pass legislation where they would not have any THC in any edible. I don't know if that's going to be possible, but just the fact that a legislator is listening to this. So I think you have to pick, you know, the most vulnerable are the developing brain people. So the young children, the pregnant women, uh, the, um, the, the adolescents, and then just kind of have, a, have an elevator speech on the effects of high potency THC on all of those people. <laughs> Dr. Madras, do you have a... Your elevator speech? My, my quick elevator speech would be uh, measure the cost-benefit equation for the city and the state and the country. Um, for alcohol and tobacco, the cost-benefit equation is about a 20, 10 to 1 ratio in terms of it's it, for every dollar that you get in tax revenue, you spend about $10 in uh, public health, in criminal justice, and in um lost employment. Uh, with the opioids, it's it's extremely high as well. Uh, the only cost-benefit equation I've seen calculated has been in Colorado, 
Um, of course, it's always questioned by the people who are profiteers, but that's about 4.5 to 1 ratio. So that for every dollar you get raised in revenue, you're going to be spending four and a half dollars on um, on cleaning up the, the detritus that happens as a result of it. And I, I think that that is... Um, I think that that's that's that that's a, a cold and 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 rather calculating way to go. But if people are not going to listen, I, I mean, my first approach always is to give the science on what happens to young people and what the consequences are and what the percentages of people who could be affected in terms of um, per population of users as well as absolute numbers. I always try to deal with the science first, but if that's not good enough, I just go to the hard cold numbers. That's a great elevator speech. If they're interested in money, then your elevator speech is on money. It's not gonna save you money, it's gonna cost you. Um, Cynthia Holtzman has a question. What's the intention of lacing marijuana with fentanyl? Um, I, I, I do keep an eye on that as an emergency physician. I, with, I, I speak uh, regularly, monthly with law enforcement, and we haven't had any cases of marijuana flower with fentanyl in San Diego County, although we've had the first vaping overdose of fentanyl. Uh, um, through a vape product, although other states have had outbreaks. The, I have seen patients, several patients, who insist after being um, overdosing and being revived with naloxone uh, that, I swear it was only marijuana, it was only marijuana, but, you know, the drug screen speaks otherwise and their clinical experiences otherwise. And all I could think of is in, uh, the marijuana is when it's used in a bong. They may be thinking they're using meth or other drugs, but it has fentanyl in it. And so they're being tricked um, because that was not their intention. Um, so that's that's one one thing. And then um, um, anybody else? Uh, Dr. Madras or... Um, well, there, there are very few, uh, very few reports of lacing marijuana with fentanyl. And and quite frankly, I'm puzzled by it because um, I honestly believe that um, with every other one of these um, entrepreneurial uh, outreaches of, of trying to put fentanyl into everything, it's in order to try to hook people into using opioids and especially this most powerful one. I don't understand why the um, profiteers haven't gone in that direction, but it's not a common thing. Um, the only thing I can add is that an emergency department mentions uh, among the top five drugs that are uh, that are listed with emergency departments, alcohol, marijuana is the, the most important second drug. With cocaine and with methamphetamine, marijuana is the second most important drug. Um, and with opioids, it's the fifth most important drug. So I don't see a conflation of the two drug classes yet, but uh, nothing is unheard of in the drug scene in the United States. That's great. Um, I think we got, there's a lot of comments in the chat, uh, very active chat here, which is wonderful. Um, let me just ask a few questions, get to other drugs about um, methamphetamines and 
um, hopes for treatment of methamphetamines. Um, and Dr. Ristow mentioned something happening in, in allowing for contingency management that has a various uh, barriers to that. But what, what is effective um, for that? And I'll go to Libyan. What's, what's the combination? Usually people don't have, you know, when I, we had a speaker recently, what's your drug of choice? And he said, all of them. <laughs> it, well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I kind of support something that Scott said earlier that we've lost a, a good reason to get people into treatment because even though the treatment program I was running at the state hospital is closed now because craziness, but it was around for over 30 years and we were treating primarily people that were there as a condition of probation. Uh, and so that was the judge, you know, said you can go to jail or you can go to treatment and they chose treatment. And the fact that we had 90 days was phenomenal because we could really turn people around. And and the um, <clears throat> so we've kind of lost that thing. But one of the things that I experienced is I had the best outcomes with people with methamphetamine uh, as their primary drug. And. That's interesting in the fact that I actually think that it, you know, maybe I don't know scientifically, but maybe it's because it leaves the body faster than marijuana. Um, and and people, I, I really don't know why, but just the fact that we had 90 days, highly intensive cognitive behavioral program with um, a lot of complementary treatments added. So we did a lot of things like ear acupuncture, and we did a lot of trauma work and EMDR kind of work. Uh, and the best outcomes were with people with methamphetamine as their primary drug. Um, and so I have never seen that as a bad one if you've got somebody in treatment long enough. And of course, they were then ordered to be in treatment. Then they were very happy to be there once they finally kind of cleared up and said that. But uh, yeah, there is nothing specific for methamphetamine, like she said, and or cocaine. Uh, and I don't know. I, yeah. That's very, it's very interesting because with methamphetamine, that gives you the highest of all the drugs dopamine surge, but yet the withdrawal effects of meth are very mild. You just crash and sleep it off. So you don't really have a bad yeah. withdrawal. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's part of the reason. And I think that's why we were seeing such worse outcomes with the high potency THC, because, you know, I, I actually had somebody that it was still in their urine three months out because they were using so heavily before they came in and they had a lot of fat stores and they were in a very controlled environment. So I knew they weren't getting any extra. But the methamphetamine leaves very quickly, and then you actually can work with people. And if you've got them in treatment long enough, you can actually change the way they think. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. In one of the drug courts I visited, um, the, uh, the judge who headed the drug court told me that with methamphetamine, if they have a psychiatrist associated with the court, they really have good outcomes. So Libby, I think it's also a testimony to you. 
and your and your your expertise because uh, I I think that was I I think there needs to be um, more than than simply uh, a pharmacokinetic uh, explanation for it and I think psychiatry is probably it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the the um, yeah. That's great. And let me ask you guys, fentanyl vaccine, that's new under the horizon. What are your thoughts? Who would use that? Like, I don't think I would want one, right? Because if I break my arm, I want fentanyl to <laughs> to work for me. Or, um, but there is a subset of population where that may be helpful. I, I'm, I'm very intrigued with it. I think fentanyl would be a very important um, uh, tool for the um, the people who are uh, motivated, motivated to quit and simply cannot resist using. I think the danger with, as with all vaccines, is that if you are not motivated and you develop a strong antibody reaction, then you may try to surmount the uh, the antibody lockup of of the drug by adding more drug to your system, um, which is a consideration we also have to think about. But years ago, when we were debating the vaccines, the nicotine, the cocaine for and for just about every drug, I once polled a group of people on whether or not they'd want their children vaccinated against. Um, what were categorized as illicit drugs. And what was remarkable, because from, from my perspective, I think there it's a no-brainer, <laughs> except if you, you know, you if you really have intensive um, parenting, you may not need that extra protection. But many of the people simply didn't want the vaccine for their children. And when I asked why, they said, well, it deprives them of a potential experience. Hmm. It's food for thought as to why they answered that way. Interesting. Um, so now, if are there any questions for our, our, our experts? I'll have you just open up, undo your mute and ask. And if not, we will make our conclusion remarks. I had two questions and it's real obvious that i'm neither yeah, just can you just say your name and introduce yourself uh, ron, ron stark i with north inland substance use prevention with turn behavior health uh uh services and i it's obvious i'm not i'm neither a scientist a researcher or a doctor and i come at this as as kind of a community member i mean I, i've I've studied a lot and I have a master's degree in business. And so when I look at it at the business end of it, I wrote the question, the volume of studies showing benefit of marijuana compared to those that show harm. That was my first question. Well, I'll leave that as my only question. One comment about the power of influence of, of uh, parents. We did a a questionnaire with the Greeks and the athletes at Cal State University San Marcos about a few months after the legalization of recreational marijuana uh, in California. And we asked we asked the question, who influences students generically to use alcohol? And then who 
um, marijuana, and it was invariably peers, friends, older acquaintances, etc. And then we asked the question, who influences uh, you specifically not to, so in the general with, with the using it, and with the specific of not using it, uh, who influences you to not use alcohol, and in, who influences you to not use marijuana? Invariably, when it came to alcohol, the answer was the coaches and their and their mentors in the community. When it came to marijuana, invariably, it was not just parents. It was mom. So mom is the most powerful messenger to influence or inoculate against marijuana use in my non-scientific mind. So if you'll go to my question of volume of studies showing benefit compared to those showing harm. Just, I, I guess I really can't answer that truthfully in the fact that I look mostly for the harms. I have a ton of research on the harms. Um, I've, I've been looking for the positive ones, but, you know, it's interesting, like this new one that just came out about the pain studies. Uh, it was a meta-analysis of 20 pain studies showing that placebo was uh, actually more powerful than the cannabis for pain. And it was based on people's expectations and it was really based on the media. So that is a big problem in this country is the media does not report the harms. The media only reports the benefits. And so um, what, you know, this group and all these other groups need to have are media people that are willing to be more open about publishing the harms so that we can kind of help educate people better. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. Ethan Nettleman, who um, I'm sure everyone here is aware of, uh, he once interviewed Nora Volko in the past. Tell, tell us, tell us who he is, Martha. Not everybody knows. He was um the head of the drug policy alliance, um, if I got the nomenclature correct. Um, paid for a with a very large amount of money by uh, the Soros um, group to advocate for uh, drug legalization, and he's he's an eloquent advocate for it. Um, and he asked Nora Volko, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. How come you spend all NIDA's money on marijuana research looking at the negative effects? Why not the positive effects? And um, I, I think it's best to read her answer. But in summary, the most important uh, conclusion from that discussion and from others is that there are there is research that investigates and interrogates people who are using marijuana as to the reasons why they use. And the self-reports are that they use for sleep issues. They use it to reduce anxiety. They reduce it to reduce stress. They reduce it to, um, and for psychoactive purposes, just to get high. Um, and some people who are actually forthcoming and honest say they use it for better sex, which is rarely reported in the literature. 
Um, but if you actually look at objective studies done on, for example, sleep and anxiety, and some of these other emotional, you know, internalizing problems, uh, the, what I call the demons that people have, the data are not that good in terms of the positive benefits. The sleep issue, people are absolutely adamant that it helps them get to sleep. But if you actually look at the literature, there has not been one good study uh, evaluating marijuana and sleep. Um, and also, there is not certainly not a good study in evaluating marijuana on long-term outcomes on sleep, whether or not it begins to disrupt sleep after a year or two of very regular use. So a lot of the benefits that people claim uh, could be investigated, and the results may turn out to be contra, uh, contrary to what people think the marijuana is doing that is beneficial for them. Very interesting. And um, Dr. Paula Gordon, I think this will be like our, our last question here. Thank you. Um, I want to uh, congratulate you on all the work that you've been doing on a fantastic um, website you have and resources on it. I, I made a special note because you haven't mentioned it, at least not that I heard. Uh, you're talking <laughs> about the Isaac website, right? The International yes, Academy yes, in Science and Impact Campus. Yes. Just fantastic. And uh, I also mentioned the um, um, recent um, publication that is available widely. Now, um, one of the things that has concerned me uh, is um, the, um, and I've noted a number of them in, in the chat, um, is the uh, approach that uh, Nora Vokow took with the Dalai Lama. And this is a two and a half hour um, video that I uh, put the uh, URL for it there and you can also Google it. Um, and it is one of the best overviews, I think, and one of the most convincing things to use in any kind of treatment program that there might be. Uh, one of the things it doesn't mention though, and then I want to bring up here, is the importance of um, the uh, effect on of marijuana on reproductive health and on um, abnormal births? And Stuart Reese, who's on your board, uh, is uh, based in um, Australia, has done an incredible job with Gary Hulse on tracking the uh, incidence of all kinds of uh, arteriopathic, uh, teratogenic, and genotoxic effects uh, throughout the world uh, in communities where marijuana is widely used. And it's really quite astounding. I think the sooner that people are aware that this is affecting future generations, and as Libby has pointed out and helped me with the um, research that I put together in, in an article that I also mentioned in the chat um, on um, why marijuana should not be legalized, uh, has to do with the uh, effect on um, the, uh, 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 the brain and the fact that this affects future generations. I mean, it's just not the person who's using it. It's their child and their children. Which, uh, and I wondered if, um, um, you know, I think this is why we're, we're experiencing prior to COVID, in fact, uh, 
the increase in drug use is that I think that the there are so many generations now that have been since the 60s that have been exposed to marijuana and the effects on their neuro, uh, neurological systems in the brain that uh, they are more uh, open to. It's as if their brains had been primed, I think, uh, the previous uh, the previous Surgeon General had, had mentioned this, in fact, and used those terms. I uh, wonder if you could... Uh, anyone would uh, respond to that, the issue about the importance of letting people know about the effect on reproduction, uh, health, reproductive health, and on uh, abnormal, abnormal birth. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Reese, he has an episode with High Truths and Drugs and Addiction. If you want to hear more about him, he talks about how weed, weed wax your DNA. Um, um, I did forward his study to the CDC cannabis unit, but I think that they like to verify those data. I'm, I'm not sure how they're they're dealing with that, but they are aware. Um, but Dr. Stout and Madras, yeah, I am. Um, when I give talks, I frequently um, show um, a thing with Yasmin Hurd, who's a researcher, I think, at Mount Sinai. She's, she's doing some incredible research on the intergenerational effects of marijuana. Um, and she had a talk for the Institute of Cannabis Research for Pueblo that was back in February of 2022. And I listened to the whole talk and I, I was really impressed with the research she's doing. And she didn't put this in so many words, but what I got out of her whole presentation was that nobody should be using cannabis unless they're 25 years of age and older and they never plan to have kids because she does point out that it does affect the gametes. And so then it passes on to the future generations, just like you're saying, Paula. So um, yeah, I think that's really important piece to get people attention. I, I, I did laugh with the, the COVID um, antiviral treatments that came out. They have a warning about, you know, not um, getting pregnant for men and women for three months. And uh, yet, hey, we have people. <laughs> well, it should be beyond three months. I, I've yeah. been spending a lot of time on the pandemic. I, in fact, I, I noted in the chat that, that if you would like a 50-page a plus a reference list on the pandemic, please email me at pgordon at rcn.com. I'd be happy to send it to you free. Um, it seems that um, the spike protein not only that results from COVID, having COVID, but the spike protein that results from a variety of the mRNA vaccines and boosters stays in the body a long period of time and affects also fertility. And, uh, and uh, I, I do note in the chat that this is a confounding factor. I, another reason we're seeing so much drug use, I think, has to do with the last, uh, since uh, the, the pandemic started in 2020, and uh, it has to do with the effects on, on all the various mandates and the effects that they've had. Um, uh, one, one thing I would like to add and in response to what you just said, Libby, is that I don't think that the limit should be 25 years old. I think that no one of any age should be using marijuana 
and this is one of the things that has not been mentioned that I've heard today is secondhand smoke and the effect that people who are using marijuana have on others who are sensitive to their use and former former users are particularly sensitive to um, the use of marijuana and being around marijuana smoke and even the odor of it. Uh, and it's um, it's very un, unsettling. Um, it's destroying Washington, D.C. You can't go downtown without being overwhelmed. And I understand the same thing is true of New York City and probably is true of Los, parts of Los Angeles, Seattle and San Francisco. It's it's and in Portland, it's just amazing what is happening. And um, there's an article that I put in the chat that I've written that has to do with that as well. So um, I, would, I would just love to add on the Yasmin Hurt study for one moment. Yes. Uh, what Yasmin has done is shown that if adolescents are exposed to THC, which is the primary cannabinoid in marijuana, only during adolescence, and then they're withdrawn from the drug and they never see it again, they're allowed to grow up, and then they mate, their offspring consume heroin at higher rates. Mm. And not only do they consume heroin at higher rates, but if you look in their brain, their brains have changed in terms of their dopamine signaling. I won't get into all the details. So the idea is that in the germ cells of males, in this case, it was the male who was exposed, um, they can uh, carry epigenetic changes that then are transmitted to the offspring. And then it the brains have been modified in a way that they like consume seek heroin at higher levels than if the adolescent during the adolescent stage they were never exposed to THC of marijuana. So it's a very important study. Um, it implies that transgenerational um, epigenetic changes can occur and it has to be replicated by other labs. It has to be replicated in humans. But it's it's an it's it's certainly a cause of concern. All right, you guys are amazing. Um, this is a smart group with lots of great uh, questions, and uh, we continue to have uh, great questions. And that why that's why we still have season three after all these episodes. The conversation doesn't end um, with drugs. So I really really thank each and every one of you for what you do boots on the ground, um, in your work, in your life, in your community, in your families, in your profession. I wish you all success in that. Um, don't give up. This is an important uh, mission. Um, it's There's not short-term solutions. It's long-term solutions. And with together, understanding all aspects, um, we can get to a good place um, for for our population and our families. So I really thank you all so much. I wish you all a happy, healthy um, new year. And uh, we'll be sharing more high truths in 2023. And um, to share some of, um, some of my wishes, I, I first want to really thank 
I want to thank Dr. Madras, Dr. Stout, and Dr. Ristow. You are each very, very busy uh, women professionals, and you've graciously made a lot of time for us today. And thank you for your dedicated service to people who have a substance use disorder and for preventing the addiction um, problem. And I share some high truth hopes for 2023. I think we have proven capable of tackling infectious diseases such as malaria, draining the swamp, HIV, creating vaccines, and it's not a deadly disease anymore, and COVID. And we took a multimodal approach to traffic fatalities. And if we approach drugs like we did infections, like we did traffic fatalities with a unified approach, we can save lives. My other hope is for a united front on addiction. Many of us view the issue of drugs from different lenses, primary prevention, treatment, harm reduction, cutting off the illegal supply of drugs from uh, outside our borders. And we work with different cohorts of populations and people and perspectives, but yet we share all the common important goal of saving lives. So united we stand, we can save lives, but divided we fall and we pay a heavy price. And thank you all for our participants today very smart questions and I appreciate your passion and your advocacy. We have great episodes lined up for 2023, season three of High Truths. And again, I bless you with Happy New Year and may 2023 bring you health, happiness, and meaning. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to view their medical library translated for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.